Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Hi, I'm Greg Polson, and this is Cults. Today's episode is our second installment in our series covering Jim Jones and the People's Temple. Jones, a former farm boy turned charismatic faith healer, opened the doors to the first People's Temple in the late 1950s. By the mid-1960s, the temple had migrated west to Northern California, shedding its religious affectations and revealing its identity as a socialist utopian movement. As we take a closer look at the followers of this cult and their tragic end in the jungle of Guyana, I'm joined once again by my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. We'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of cults on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Last week, we examined the origin story of America's deadliest cult leader. Ever since he was a child, Jim Jones felt isolated from the community around him, helped along by a stunning intellect, good looks, and a charismatic way with words. Jim Jones became a preacher, first in his childhood barn and later in Indianapolis. His focus was social justice. His goal was to have the first racially integrated congregation to gain a massive following in America. But once he had established his community, Jones ramped up his megalomaniacal behavior, instituting unbelievable faith healings to draw in impoverished and desperate followers, and creating a ranked leadership hierarchy based on communist governments. Many were awarded positions of power, but their true authority rested in how loyal they were to the central authority of Jones. So they spied on and backstabbed one another, all in the service of the greater good that Jim Jones told them that he embodied. Their goal was still to create a society based on true equality, but a paradox guided this mission. This equal society could only be envisioned by Jones. In reality, their beliefs were simpler. They would give up their material possessions. They would give most of their income to the temple. They would live communally and marry whoever Jones wanted them to. Their beliefs were to do what Jones wanted, when he wanted. To submit to his will in order to redeem the world via his warped vision of a socialist utopia. The People's Temple went from Christianity in Indiana to socialism in California. But there was still a final step to take into a fascist nightmare in the jungles of Guyana, where a paranoid Jones hoped to construct his utopia, the People's Temple Agricultural Project more infamously known as Jonestown. This week, we'll zero in on the lifestyle and motivations of the People's Temple congregants, who at the peak of their membership in the early 1970s numbered around 3,000. We'll try to understand how Jones controlled them and attempt to comprehend the final stand at Jonestown that led to the largest mass suicide of Americans in history. For the highest-ranking members of the San Francisco chapter of the People's Temple, it seemed like an ordinary night. It was the early 1970s. Things seemed to be looking up. Jim Jones, with the help of his first lieutenant and legal advisor, Timothy Stone, had recently worked his way into the city government itself, impressing Mayor George Moscone and earning the title of chairman on the Housing Commission. The group had gathered in a banquet hall near their compound in Ukiah, California, Unusually, Jim Jones had made a special allowance for the evening's celebrations. The members were encouraged to drink a little alcohol. 
Normally, this behavior was condemned by the temple. Drinking represented the excesses of American society they so despised. But Jones's word was law, and if he said that drinking was allowed tonight, it was allowed. Plus, it loosened up the atmosphere a bit. People were getting friendly, relaxing. Another luxury in the ascetic lifestyle of a temple member. But like a shroud over the moonlight, Jim Jones stepped on stage, clad in his usual regalia of colorful velvet and dark sunglasses. The room fell silent under his watchful eyes. The mood rapidly changed from elation to devotion, with a slight undercurrent of fear. And like a biblical revelation, the announcement arrived. Jim Jones told his people that all of their drinks had been poisoned. It would only be a matter of time until they were all dead. Within five minutes, various people across the banquet hall had begun to choke and cough, seemingly a sign that the effects were closing in on them all. Patty Cartmell, Jones's alleged spymaster and an esteemed leader on the planning commission, ran for the door. Some of Jones's personal guards stopped her from fleeing. Jones told the crowd it would be useless to flee. He had acquired a nuclear warhead and had another team set to detonate it in San Francisco. Soon their slice of California coast would be drenched in radiation. The end time of which Jim Jones had often railed on about had arrived, and he had spared them all from immense suffering by taking their lives now. No one else moved, even as the coughing fits around them grew more and more dramatic. Over dramatic, in fact. After nearly half an hour of silent horror, Jones broke out in a grin. The truth came out. He was lying. No one had been poisoned. The coughing and choking few, along with Patty Cartmel, had been acting, some rather poorly. This had all been a test, and in Jones's eyes, they had passed. His followers had accepted their fate. Jones had successfully laid the foundation for what he called revolutionary suicide. This was a term liberally borrowed from the Black Panther leader Huey Newton, but Jones distorted its meaning when he communicated it to his followers on this night and many nights to follow. Newton's definition of revolutionary suicide was simply stating that the oppressed must rise to fight their oppressors, even if it means they will die. But in Jones's mind, the term became literal. Jim Jones told his followers that they had a weapon over their increasing number of oppressors. At any point, if Jones told them they were cornered, there was still a way out. They could take control of their lives by ending them. In Jim Jones's eyes, this was the ultimate stance and the ultimate performance. Jones's entire life was performance at this point, so this type of climax appealed to his sense of drama. But his followers truly believed radical societal change was possible and was achievable by their hands. It wasn't some mind game they were playing with themselves. Former member Deborah Layton speaks out about this in her own words. He said things like, you know, you have qualities your parents don't even recognize. You're bright. I mean, I feel power exuding from you. I want you to join my organization. With you, we can grow and become more powerful. And I sat there and thought, wow. He thinks I'm special. On this night in the California Banquet Hall, no one stirred when they learned they might die. Later interviews reveal that less than half of the room actually believed they'd been poisoned. They were used to Jones' extravagant tests of belief. As Jones always said, the ends justified the means. Jim Jones never meant to kill them, only to test the fortitude of their souls. For many in that room, and many outside of it, soon to be lured to the jungles of Guyana, That proved to be an inadequate judgment call. Jones was ready to kill, and tragically, many were ready to die for him. Bob Houston and Joyce Shaw were just two of the many who put too much faith in Jim Jones. In 1973, Bob Houston was already married with two kids when Jim Jones told him he thought it would be best for that marriage to be annulled. Instead, Jones suggested, Houston should marry Joyce. This wasn't the first or last time Jones ordered his followers to marry others. This matchmaking was used to destabilize people. Jones took away the familiar and gave them what he believed to be the superior. Followers were thrown into new experiences that were seemingly mandated by the god that was Jim Jones. In the beginning, Houston and Shaw didn't really love one another. In fact, they barely knew each other. But still, they followed orders. 
By 1974, they were wed, and they had formed a typical People's Temple household for this era in San Francisco. For decades now, Jones had called this living style communal. They were communalists, after all, not the much dirtier word communist. Over 12 people lived under Houston and Shaw's roof, including at least four other children outside of Houston's two biological kids. Everyone shared everything, as per Jones's instructions. That meant that a stranger's children got as much attention as Houston's. They were all supposed to be equals, just like Jones's own rainbow family. Over 45 properties in the Mendocino County area functioned as communal homes for the People's Temple. There were many similar units down near Los Angeles. Jones sensed, correctly, that their membership had reached a peak of sorts in the early 1970s, floating around 3,000 people. The encouragement of communal living was a strategy on Jones's part to deepen the loyalty of those already involved in the temple. It fostered a sense of mutual struggle and accomplishment. Together, they could live free from the compromise of a modern, industrialized life. If they left now, it would be like abandoning a family on which they had come to depend. As much of the temple's funding came from disabled and elderly members who passed on their disability and social security checks nearly in full, Jones wanted to make sure that the younger generation would remain in place to do the same when they reached older age. Even as Jones planned the mass migration to Guyana, it was important to keep up appearances stateside. To keep his leadership enforced, the people in the San Francisco chapter received the harshest treatment. Physical discipline was encouraged by the leadership committee, What had begun in the late 1960s as light spankings and reprimands for children had grown more sinister. The temple leaders, including Jones himself, relished beating disobedient children and teenagers with paddles. In more extreme cases, they would hold boxing matches between adult members, often with Jones in the audience laughing and cheering it all along as members physically assaulted each other for his pleasure. Yet none of these disciplinary techniques were as effective as exclusion and judgment by the planning commission leaders. Bob Houston is another example in this arena. Houston truly believed in the socialist cause and did more research than Jim Jones ever did. But this always came back to bite him. When Houston spoke up in meetings questioning Jones' reading of theory, Jones would laugh it off. And behind Houston's back spread rumors about this particular follower's high opinion of himself. Jones created a public reputation for Houston as pretentious, as someone who thought they were smarter than other members. That was all the fuel many needed to turn on Houston completely. They would publicly shatter his ego and talk down to him, all in an effort to appease Jones and prove their loyalty. Such treatment did eventually drive people into defection. We briefly covered the case of the eight revolutionaries last week. A group of eight, mostly young, temple members defected in the early 1970s. Within this group was Jim Cobb. Cobb was brought into the temple as a child. When Jones claimed to miraculously cure a hearing condition for the boy and proclaimed him a future leader within the temple. Now, Cobb's entire extended family was invested in the temple. Cobb served loyally as a youth leader until he finally began to break free of Jones' spell. Due to the loyalty invested in him, Cobb was a first-hand witness to the physical and psychological abuse that Jones delighted in dishing out. Slowly, his opinion of the man he once revered changed to resentment. Cobb's defection was just one of many of Jones's prophecies that had proved faulty. Nuclear war hadn't begun in 1967. It didn't begin in 1973, either. Consequences were coming home to roost, and Jones could tell keeping up appearances wasn't going to cover it much longer. More workers were sent down into Jonestown, including Jim and Marceline Jones's only biological child, the alienated and angry Stephen Jones. For years, he watched his father neglect his real family and cheat on his mother. Twice, Stephen had even attempted suicide with his father's stash of drugs. In a last-ditch effort at retaining his loyalty to the family, Marceline agreed that Stefan should give Jonestown a chance. Perhaps there, he could finally find his purpose. The communal fabric of America didn't cut it. The People's Temple needed to weave their own tapestry in Guyana. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, 
including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now the story continues. Guyana gained independence in 1966 when Lyndon Forbes Burnham took power, winning an election against a socialist rival. Yet soon enough, Burnham's regime became a socialist power structure all the same. Idolizing the USSR, the country was a perfect nesting ground for Jones's proposed utopia. Some local Christian missionaries were opposed to Jones. They remembered him from his time in South America in the 1960s and knew he was a charlatan. But the Disciples of Christ, the nationwide Christian church to which the People's Temple paid dues, vouched for Jones's legitimacy. Workers arrived a year ahead of most farming equipment in 1974. In the beginning, there was only about 30 or 40 people, and they were angry. Guyana wasn't the paradise Jones had promised. The land for the People's Temple Agricultural Project was far from the capital of Georgetown. It was even a long ride from the nearby village of Port Kaituma. On top of that, the soil was poor and unmanageable. Nothing was growing. During these first two years, when Jim Jones made infrequent trips down into his paradise in the making, he would buy fruit and vegetables from the market in Kaituma and make propaganda videos displaying the produce like it had been grown in Jonestown. Still, the Jonestown's workers believed in what they were doing, and they believed in Jim Jones. Each night, the temple workers gathered to give thanks to Jim Jones. The ritual was known as the Three Miracles. Each follower needed to cite three examples from the day where Jones had used his divine abilities to help or protect them in some way. Luckily, the grueling construction and field-clearing work in Guyana provided plenty of near misses. If a branch fell next to one of them or a housing project collapsed just after they walked outside, the credit went to Jones. Even when he was far from them, schmoozing in San Francisco, he was looking out for their best interests. And at night, when darkness fell over the jungle and peace came to the workers, it did seem a bit like paradise. But then came the year 1976. First came a mysterious death. Bob Houston was found on the side of train tracks outside of San Francisco. Joyce and Bob's father, Sam, were adamant. Bob would have never taken his own life. He loved his two daughters far too much. They suspected that Jones had ordered the death after Joyce admitted to Bob that she wanted to leave the temple. Houston, ever the good soldier, reported this to Jones. Joyce's thinking was that Jones then decided to eliminate Bob to scare her into staying and keeping the children in their communal home. While this mystery was never solved, one thing is for certain. If this was Jones's doing and his intention, it completely backfired. Sam Houston wrote a letter to his congressman, Leo Ryan, where before only disparate legal and journalistic communities were concerned with the dark side of the People's Temple. Now a coalition began to form under the banner of Congressman Ryan. But in Jim Jones's eyes, this event was secondary to a much bigger crisis. Grace Stone, the wife of Timothy Stone, Jones's political proxy, defected from the People's Temple in 1976. However, it's important to remember that Grace and Tim's son, John Victor, was a boy of two worlds. Upon his birth, Jones had asked Tim to sign away the boy's parentage to him. John Victor was legally the son of Grace Stone and Jim Jones, even though the two had never shared a bed. When Grace left, John Victor had to be left behind. 
But as Grace quickly realized, her son was being turned against her. So she decided she would sue for custody. Despite any potential dire consequences, Grace Stone was ready to fight for her child by piercing the holy veil of the people's temple and letting all of their secrets spill out into the open. As if decreed by fate, another opposition was simultaneously fostered in San Francisco. Chronicle reporter Marcus Kilduff had taken up the journalistic baton left behind by examiner reporters four years before him. He wanted to write an in-depth exploration of the people's temple and publish it in New West. The threat of exposure pushed Jim Jones over the edge. He grabbed John Victor Stone and flew to Guyana near the beginning of 1977. Jim Jones would never return to America. From this point forward, he would pass on his sermons and messages to statewide members via radio. He told them that a conspiracy was in motion against the People's Temple. The U.S. government and its proxies were closing in to stop these honorable socialist idealists in their destined journey. His political friends like George Moscone couldn't believe it. Their housing commissioner would never just flee the country. But Jones officially resigned the position in 1977. His focus was on the future now. His focus in totality was on Jonestown. Plans began for a mass migration. Jones wanted to get as many members to Guyana as quickly as possible. Construction speed was recklessly increased. Workers drove themselves from 6 in the morning until 6 at night, seven days a week. Facilities designed to hold 10 or 12 people would now need to hold at least 40. Meanwhile, leaders like Archie Iyamez, the Universalist, and Jones's wife, Marceline, rallied resources for the migration. They had the money to transport two large groups of 450 each to Guyana. After that, they hoped to spirit out at least 100 a month, aiming for a complete relocation by August 1977. They never quite made those estimates, as legal pressures increased against Jones. They became paranoid that American immigration offices were being watched by the authorities. Still, the People's Temple managed to move over a thousand members to Jonestown by September 1977. Many left their families without word, under the cover of night. Others fled first to the East Coast, where they hoped to cover their tracks with an elaborate series of plane jumps into Guyana. Sure, they were afraid, but God, and more importantly, Jim Jones, was on their side. And what a sight they would see as they made their way over the broken road from Port Kaituma to the gates of Jonestown. Over the entrance hung a sign, welcoming them to the People's Temple Agricultural Project. Next, they passed by the security checkpoint. Weapons had been smuggled into Guyana via crafty radio communication between the temple's Georgetown headquarters, a basic radio outpost that housed a rotating cycle of followers, and San Francisco. Deemed the San Francisco Bible Exchange, these Bibles were actually machine guns, a welcome sight to paranoid travelers on their way into utopia. Finally, a clearing emerged and a complete portrait of Jonestown came into view. There were acres of plantain groves and fields for farming. The compound began with a large building, the mess hall. There were showers next to that and a path that led to the beating heart of the project, the pavilion, a huge gathering space covered by a metal rain guard. There were five dormitories, segregated by gender. There were clusters of village homes for communal families. There was a nursery, and a school, and a radio room. Behind all of the living quarters, laid a vast recreation area. And the jewels on the crown were the East House, designed for overnight visitors, and the West House, where Jones and his family lived. All in all, it seemed like a perfect home for the People's Temple. After long, arduous trips overseas, finally, the followers had their fresh start. Yet it only took a week for the atmosphere to sour. A few months earlier, Tim Stone had arrived in Guyana to help ease political tensions between the temple and the national government in Georgetown. But he also longed to see John Victor, his son. Ever since Grace's defection, Jones had been cutting Stone out of meetings. Stone suspected that Jones planned to completely turn John Victor against both of his parents. During his time in Jonestown in early 1977, Stone was constantly watched by everyone else in Jonestown. Tim tried not to act too suspiciously. He had no plans to steal his son away in the night. But John Victor's closeness to Jim Jones bothered Tim. And though Tim and Grace had divorced a few years ago, he still felt as if he had betrayed her. When Tim Stone left Jonestown, Jones ordered his spies to keep tabs on the attorney. 
But Timstone slipped their grasp, flying to England, and then boarding a flight back to America. When he came back into their sights, it was too late. Tim had joined his ex-wife, Grace, in their paternity lawsuit. Jim Jones's most loyal and useful lieutenant had become public enemy number one. On September 7, 1977, Jim Jones called together his newly gathered horde under the pavilion. He announced the Stones' betrayal, and he told everyone that they had sent a legal authority to Guyana to arrest Jim Jones and reclaim John Victor. That evening, Jim Jones pulled an old trick out of his hat. He staged an attack on his West House. Over the PA system, he announced that he had healed his grievous injuries, but there was no denying the truth. Jonestown was under siege. For the next six days, Jones allowed no rest for his followers. He told everyone that a covert American strike force had been sent to Jonestown to either capture Jones or kill everyone there. In the midst of this imaginary siege, Jones pulled the temple members together under the pavilion. With sadness in his voice, he told them all they were reaching a tipping point. Those who had been in San Francisco that terrible night a few years earlier might have recognized where this was heading. Jones returned publicly to his idea of revolutionary suicide. Stephen Jones was eventually able to wrangle his father's urges and halt the imagined siege of September 1977. But Jim Jones's calls to revolutionary suicide would not end. Every time the PA would ring out, the cult would gather beneath the pavilion. Jones would serenade about the potential and power of killing themselves for the cause. People would ask questions, and Jones would charismatically bend their will, telling them that there was no greater gesture than coordinated suicide. These events came to be known within Jonestown as White Knights. For hours at a time, deep into the night, Jones would terrify his followers into thinking they were hours away from death. Once again, we turn to an interview with former Jonestown resident, Deborah Layton. Every week we had a suicide drill. The sirens would start to blast through Jonestown, and Jim's voice would come over the loudspeaker system. His voice actually was on it 24 hours a day. He had himself taped. And while we slept and while we worked in the field, we heard his voice. And yet every time, the white night ended, just like the imaginary siege did. Jones would send the followers back to their everyday lives in Jonestown, even giving them a day off to psychologically recover. But he was grooming them all the same. After a white night, Jones would commend his followers' loyalty, telling them that they were exercising the strength of their will. Only with strong will would they be able to defeat the forces gathering against them. This was a clear case of psychological conditioning. Repeating this process over and over coded Jones's absurd idea of revolutionary suicide in normality. Stepping up to the edge of death became routine. It was theoretical for now. Many took this with a stiff upper lip, priding themselves on the ability to weather white nights. But others grew fatigued with a semi-regular psychological torment. The atmosphere of Jonestown continued to spiral into madness when 1978 dawned with a tragedy in the life of Jim Jones. Lynetta Jones, his beloved mother whom he had idolized since birth, passed away in Jonestown. Jim Jones himself underwent a dramatic transformation. He gained a sizable amount of weight and began indulging in more secretive drug use. Things came to a head on a white night early in 1978. After hours of the usual lecturing, Jones told his people that tonight really was the night. Vats of juice were rolled into the pavilion. Jones told them to fill their cups and drink. And people did. So even at this point in 1978, tragedy was a heartbeat away. Stephen Jones again had to step in and tell everyone that the juice wasn't poisoned. This was yet another test. Another white night that they would survive. But Jones had gone off the deep end by now. Marceline, Stefan, Archie, Yames, and a few others knew it. There needed to be a change in leadership, or else. Back stateside, the group hoping to reveal the truth about Jim Jones was handed a bombshell. Reporter Tim Reiterman, who would later write the renowned People's Temple biography, Raven, came into contact with a temple defector named Liam Broussard. Broussard was a San Francisco local. Temple members discovered Broussard living on the streets and promised him freedom and health in Jonestown. He happily took up their offer. The truth, Broussard told Reitemann, was much more deranged. Jones had become something of a dictator. 
his armed guards constantly patrolled the grounds, looking for weak links in the daily workforce. Broussard became a target. Jones and his men would pour vitriol on him about how the temple had saved him and now he was rewarding it with poor work ethic. Food was withheld from Broussard and other targets, decreasing their ability to work even further. Public floggings took on a more tribal aspect, often done out in the open under the pavilion. What disturbed Reiterman and the other investigators most, though, was Broussard's mention of the pit, a hole in the ground where repeat offenders were sent to serve terms of solitude, with no food or medical attention for their injuries. Broussard escaped under the cover of night to Georgetown. Temple aides in the Guyanese capital caught him trying to leave the country. Not wanting to upset their relations with the local government, they bought Broussard's ticket home as a token of goodwill. Although his testimony couldn't be verified, the investigative team, the concerned relatives, and Congressman Leo Ryan's office were keyed up. Ryan began looking into his options. His ultimate goal was to visit Jonestown himself. Down in the People's Temple Settlement, 1978 was off to a terrible start. Jones had completely retreated from visibility at this point, hiding away in his West House and only occasionally offering absurd condemnations about the concerned relatives or inane updates on his state of health over the PA system. Life had taken on an absurd quality in full. For example, children in the preschool had spelling lessons designed by Jones, while Marceline tried her best to give the children real lessons. She was forced to make them spell out sentences where they declared themselves socialist guerrilla warriors or sentences declaring Timothy Stone a violent and dangerous traitor to their cause. Jones was creating his own history books. Meanwhile, adults were given sporadic group lessons on the Russian language. Some assumed this was preparation for the next step of their journey. Jim Jones was going to lead them to true freedom in the bosom of the USSR. But freedom wasn't one of Jones's primary interests anymore. The reporter Tim Reiterman described it best in his book Raven. Quote, Like the temple, most cults set out unattainable goals, such as heaven on earth, because attainment would leave the organization without a justification for its own existence. The cult really strives to preserve a state of mind with defendable borders. As in the temple, most significant violations of the cult borders are defections by traitors and investigations by the outside enemy. This alarmist view is promoted by the charismatic leader who constantly asks his followers to push a growing juggernaut of paranoia uphill. He defines reality and makes all rules, end quote. Jim Jones's definition of reality was madness. But isolated in Jonestown, the followers had no way to gauge how far astray he was leading them. Broussard's testimony was on the money. Jones's loyalists would pick out those who seemed the least devout and force them into hard labor crews known as public service units. Jones wanted the most dangerous to be exhausted. While this worked against him in the case of Broussard, it did keep many others in line. Remember now, the entire basis of Jones's mounting paranoia was that the American government was coming for him because of one reason and one reason alone, the child John Victor Stone. Jones tried to solidify this in the minds of his followers. By putting them all at risk of these violent sieges, he was really just protecting John Victor. He typed out a message to President Jimmy Carter, putting forward his case as the rightful father of John Victor. It's unlikely Jones was delusional enough to believe he could still share one-on-one -on -one correspondence with the president, but the display of his ambition was all that mattered. Jones was still fighting for his followers in the largest battleground imaginable, the American political system. He was crafting an epic narrative for everyone to believe in. But Jones knew he really couldn't go home because of the countless legal and journalistic entities readying to deflate his persona. He used John Victor, barely seven years old, as both a pawn and a scapegoat. And he wouldn't allow others to write or call home either. When they were allowed use of the radio room, it was heavily monitored. Nothing would pass unseen by the temple leadership, especially not after Broussard's defection. He shamed them into silence. A quote from Jones follows, Some of you break my heart. Here I sit with a 105 degree temperature and some of you won't do much to save a stamp on an envelope. I haven't got the words. I haven't got the damn words. He even told followers that the Guyanese government would shoot them down if they tried to return to Georgetown without his permission. 
Ever since September 7, 1977, the siege mentality never really ended, and it was destroying the minds of more people than just Jones. A few months into 1978, 18-year-old Ricky Johnson discovered his girlfriend, another Jonestown resident, had cheated on him, perhaps even due to Jones's orders. He ran into the bush surrounding the compound and tried to kill himself by drinking gasoline. Out of guilt and shame, his girlfriend tried to do the same. They were discovered and rushed into medical treatment behind closed doors. Jones spoke to his people with great solemnity. He claimed that he personally had saved both of their lives, but he would never do it again. His miraculous abilities would not be used on any who tried to commit such a selfish suicide. Instead, he encouraged those struggling to check themselves into the extended care unit, another new invention. One of the medical huts had been converted into this ECU. Inside, Jones and his sickly loyal doctor, Larry Schacht, stored a veritable pharmacy of powerful drugs. The ECU held over 10,000 ejectable doses of Thorazine, an antipsychotic drug, along with another 1,000 pills. It held 20,000 doses of the painkiller Demerol and 5,000 doses of Valium. It had stores of morphine, quaaludes, addictive sleeping pills, and surgical tranquilizers. Jones and Schacht dosed the disagreeable and the dangerous. They turned followers into living zombies. Jones was officially no longer a faith healer. He was a fascist. When Jones's son, Stefan, realized what was really going on inside the ECU, he was ready to kill his father. Things couldn't go on like this. Jonestown had given him purpose for a while, but his father's personality had only degraded further, and his control of everything in Jonestown had warped him into complete psychosis. But a violent coup was the last thing Jonestown needed to remain relatively stable. He put his hopes on outlasting Jones. His father seemed sicker by the day. Even Carolyn told Stefan she would back him as leader when Jones's final day arrived. So Stefan Jones waited. He occupied his time trying to keep others happy and healthy, including his younger brother, Tim. They formed a Jonestown basketball squad and were accepted into a tournament in Georgetown. Of course, Jones didn't want them to go, but Marceline managed to convince him to let his sons leave. Stefan needed some time off. Georgetown would be a nice vacation. So early in November 1978, Stefan and the team packed up and left Jonestown. They would never return. Back in America, preparations had finally begun for the first and only outside expedition into Jonestown. Due to the complaints and fears of his constituents, Congressman Leo Ryan had been granted congressional permission to make a fact-finding journey into Guyana to check on the welfare of the Americans in Jonestown. As the date approached, Jim Jones realized there was no real way to keep Ryan out of Jonestown unless he was willing to physically resist. Ryan was backed by U.S. government orders, and the people of Jonestown were still U.S. citizens. Jones told his followers that this was another test of faith, hoping to keep as many as possible from defecting. But perhaps somewhere inside, Jim Jones began forming another plan, one known only to him. Along for the ride with Congressman Leo Ryan was a team of reporters, including Raven author Tim Reiterman and an NBC News crew. The fact-finding mission was also accompanied by a small group of concerned relatives, including members of Bob Houston's family, hoping to check on his daughters and former Temple youth leader Jim Cobb. Even Tim Stone was coming, though he would remain in Georgetown, far from the wrath of Jim Jones. On November 15th, their plane touched down in Georgetown. Two days later, on the evening of November 17th, they flew into Port Kaituma and were escorted by a temple convoy into the agricultural project itself. There were no weapons in sight at the guard booth. The mission would later learn that Jones had ordered all weapons to be hidden and locked away. Instead of a wasteland, the mission was greeted by a party under the pavilion, complete with food and music. Even Jim Jones attended, watching as his people danced and sang for the new visitors, the exact opposite of a white knight. A banner hung above their heads, reading, Those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Ryan and the reporters were flooded by temple members who sing the praises of Jonestown and their beloved leader. When Ryan stood before the group to give a speech himself, he had to admit this wasn't what he had expected. He told them that it seems like Jonestown had been a very positive experience for many of them, and he was happy for that. 
Reiterman and his fellow reporters weren't as convinced. They took the chance to corner Jones for an interview in front of everyone where he couldn't get too defensive. When pressed on how Jonestown represents socialist values, Jones admitted, quote, it's a reflection of what I thought was best, end quote. He brought out John Victor to tell everyone he's happy here. He didn't want to go home to Grace and Tim. Jones could only shrug. He's sorry the mission had been such a waste of time. Jonestown was a happy place. But when Ryan's party asked if it could spend the night in Jonestown instead of making the long drive back to Port Kaituma, Jones refused. He told them there wasn't enough room. Even when they persisted, saying they could sleep under the pavilion, he remained staunch. They must leave for the night. The party gathered together and hopped back in their convoy to Kaituma. Safely out of Jonestown, another reporter huddled close to Reiterman and showed him a slip of paper that was passed to him during the celebration. It was a message, quote, Vernon Gosney and Monica Bagby, please help us get out of Jonestown, end quote. This was the mission's first sign that things weren't so perfect in paradise after all. All in all, over a dozen people covertly approached different members of their team throughout the night. Ryan was re-energized. The group returned on the morning of the 18th, and the secret was out. Ryan's group would be taking at least a dozen defectors with him out of Jonestown. Sadly, this didn't include Bob Houston's two daughters. They took a smiling picture with Ryan and their family members, but they said they wanted to stay in Guyana. During his final interviews, Jones seemed drained of energy and enthusiasm. He tried to play it cool, telling the defectors they will always have a place here if they choose to return. Reiterman and the others noticed Jones whispering to top lieutenants like Jack Beam and Patty Cartmel throughout the afternoon as Ryan gathers the defectors to leave. Cartmel delivered a fiery statement of her own, quote, No one has ever left. Jim Jones has never expressed anything but love. I've been with him 21 years. I've been here 18 months. This place is the whole world to me. He represents all that is kind and loving. He has one fault. His heart is too big, end quote. Jones's last word to the reporters carried an undercurrent of unease. Quote, I feel sorry that we are being destroyed from within. All we want is to be left in peace. I will continue to try. Time will tell whether I will succeed, end quote. The defectors were led toward the fact-finding mission's convoy. Ryan took a final spin through the pavilion, full of confidence, hoping to pick up any stragglers, Jones watched him from a distance. Suddenly, Temple member Don Sly rushed through the crowd, a homemade blade drawn. He got behind Ryan, slicing open the congressman's shirt and putting the blade to his throat. As Ryan's allies ran to the pavilion, calmer Temple followers managed to drag Sly off of the congressman. However, it was noticeable that Jim Jones watched the whole event, motionless, calm and silent. Confidence annihilated, Ryan ordered the team to board the convoy with the current number of defectors. Jones quietly assured Ryan that Sly would be sent to the Guyanese authorities for punishment. At this point, the team just wanted to get the defectors out of there. Some of the defectors cried, pointing back toward Jonestown, claiming there were others who wanted to leave who were too afraid to speak up. At the last minute, follower Larry Layton jumped aboard the truck in which Reiterman was riding. He told them he wanted to leave too. Layton was the ex-husband of Jones's mistress, Carolyn. And as Jim Cobb quietly told Reiterman, a loyalist who would never in a million years defect from the temple. Reiterman braced himself, as did Cobb. Something was wrong here. It felt like a trap. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Now the story continues. Stephen Jones woke up late in the Temple's Georgetown headquarters. Their team had lost the game, though they lied and reported back to Jonestown that they had won. He was in no rush to get home. Then, all hell broke loose. 
Georgetown HQ lead operator Sharon Amos took a coded message from Jonestown. They were to collect as many weapons as possible and, quote, get revenge on the enemies. Amos and the others took this as a message to find and kill Tim Stone at his Georgetown hotel. Amos was ready to act, but Stefan told her to stop. Jones had given drastic orders before, like he did during the White Nights. Stefan wanted to drive into Georgetown and find out what was going on with the fact-finding mission before they did anything. The fact-finding mission was still in Port Kaituma. They had called a second plane to Kaituma to deal with their increased numbers. When that plane finally arrived, the group split into two smaller groups for boarding. The atmosphere was charged, the mood tense. Leighton's shifty behavior continued, and the temple guards who drove their convoys to the airstrip glared at the defectors. Then, two more trucks appeared on the horizon, heading for the airstrip. One of the reporters noticed the men in the truck were carrying weapons. Was this more scare tactics? Sadly, the scare tactics of Jim Jones were finally over. Now, all that was left was true horror. As the temple trucks opened fire, loyalist follower Larry Layton lunged for the pilot of the second plane, trying to overpower him. This was an assault. Jim Jones did not mean for any of them to leave alive. Congressman Leo Ryan, reporter Don Harris, cameraman Bob Brown, photographer Greg Robinson, and defector Patricia Parks were all killed within minutes. Almost everyone, including Reitermen, were injured. They dove into the boggy marshes surrounding the airstrip. Another reporter, Steve Sung, played dead by one of the airplanes. Another few minutes passed and the shooting slowed down. The temple trucks fled as Guyanese police forces pulled up. Larry Layton was left behind, unconscious after the pilot fought back. The survivors crawled out of hiding to survey the carnage. Suddenly, a nightmare had descended upon the mission. Port Kaituma locals questioned Reitermen and those still able to talk while the wounded were patched up as much as possible. The mission's survivors promised the Guyanese they weren't CIA spies, as the temple had warned. Already suspicious of Jim Jones and his cult, it didn't take much to convince the locals that the People's Temple were the bad guys here. At risk of their own lives, the locals took the survivors into hiding in Port Kaituma. But back in Jonestown, the nightmare was just beginning. The familiar siren's call of the PA system echoed across the compound. Jim Jones had just concluded a private meeting with leaders like Jack Beam, Patty Cartmel, Carolyn Layton, and Marceline Jones. He had foreseen a violent action. He told them temple members had armed themselves of their own accord and gone after Ryan. Jones believed that Larry Layton planned to hijack one of the planes and bring it down in the jungle. Of course, Jones gave no indication that he had delivered these orders, but the truth is obvious. Simultaneously, the radio message went out to Georgetown HQ to put them on high alert, and the cult members still in Jonestown were gathered beneath the pavilion one final time. Meanwhile, at the Georgetown headquarters, Sharon Amos was tired of waiting for Stephen Jones. The orders had come through. White Knight Protocol. The orders came through. People had already gone to meet Mrs. Frazier, the temple's code word for death. A revolutionary suicide event was in motion. Sharon grabbed her three children, Krista, Martin, and Leanne, wrangling them into the bathroom. Once inside, Sharon cut Martin's throat first, then Krista's. Finally, she killed Leanne, her eldest, before she took her own life. These were the first victims of the tragedy of Jonestown. Stephen Jones returned to the house and found the bodies of Sharon and her children. Stephen tried to reach Jonestown over radio, but there was no response. It was too late. The White Knight was unstoppable now. At Jonestown, Father Jim Jones took the stage. He seemed to have regained some of his old energy. He spoke clearly and walked without any help. He seemed almost relieved. He told them what he told the leaders. He expressed his belief that they had reached the end of the road. Jim Jones told them explicitly, quote, if we can't live in peace, we can die in peace, end quote. And that comment was met with cheers. The White Knights had done their damage. The time for theory had come to an end. Now it was time to act. Many were excited to give up their lives. As for the children, over 300 in number, Jones spoke gently. 
If their parents didn't spare them now, they would be butchered by the American government. Once the world discovered what happened to Ryan and what Jones hoped happened to Timothy Stone, no one in Jonestown would be spared. It would be a blessing for the children to go quietly with their parents at their side. On the surviving recording of this afternoon, though, the truth is easier to hear. Children openly wept in fear through the whole terrible afternoon. This whole narrative was Jones's final setup. He framed everything he said that afternoon to absolve himself of responsibility for their deaths. He wasn't killing them. He was still their father, tucking them in for the long night. Only one follower truly spoke up when Jones asked for dissenting opinions. Her name was Christine Miller. She wanted to go to Russia. She said if they accomplished their move to Guyana, they could do the same and join their communist brethren in Russia. But Jones shot that down over and over again. Russia didn't want them. They had no way of contacting them. With kindness in his voice, Jones told Christine it wasn't worth living like this in fear. After 15 minutes of keeping up her hopeful front, Christine Miller was backed down by the crowd. There were simply too many on Jones' side. It was inconceivable for them to believe Christine over Father Jones. And without Jones, as he told them, their lives would have no meaning. This community was one whole. If one went, they all went. If Jones went, they all went. In a sick turn of the knife, Jones told the crowd that mostly white people defected that morning with Ryan. He was making a final appeal to his minority followers' loyalty. Dr. Schacht led a team out of the ECU, rolling out vats of liquid. Inside was a fruit drink mix called Fruit Aid, mixed with potassium cyanide that had been secretly smuggled into Jonestown from as early as 1976. They set up a station by the stage. They had cups. They had syringes, so Shock's nurses could spray the solution into the mouths of those who were too fearful to drink. Jones told people to line up. He told them to give it to their children first. The procession of death began. Jones oversaw a somber celebration of sorts. He invited supporters and believers up on stage to speak and override Christine Miller. They thanked Jones. They blessed Jones. They encouraged everyone to stand in unity. Even as the crowd was carried along, some were far enough from the pavilion to escape the momentum. Jim Jones's lawyers fled into the jungle, promising the temple guards that they would tell the People's Temple's final story to the world. Others, such as Tim Carter and Odell Rhodes, were able to flee from their work posts into the bush. Elderly Hyacinth Thrash slept through the entire afternoon. And finally, low-level worker Stanley Clayton pretended he was heading out to check on something at the guard post, but instead hid in fear in the plantain fields. In the pavilion, children began to cough and choke. As they died, the speeches praising Jim Jones continued. Adults told the older children to help comfort the younger children. The authority figures claimed that the poison didn't hurt. It just tasted strange. Men and women began to fall over. Some cried out. Some screamed. All the same, the procession continued. Shock stood on stage and told people they were stepping over to the other side. It was a new beginning, not an end. Halfway through the hour-long event, Jones received word that Congressman Ryan was dead. He told his followers, It's all over. It's all over. What a legacy. He urged people to hurry up now. There wasn't much time. The enemy was coming. Hours later, as night fell over Jonestown, the workman Stanley Clayton heard gunshots ring out. Full of fear, he returned to the compound. The pavilion was quiet. Jack Beam, Patty Cartmel, Marceline Jones, they all laid dead on the ground. And there, before the stage, was Jim Jones, dead from a gunshot wound to the head. There were 13 more bodies inside the West House, including John Victor Stone, and Carolyn Layton. One follower's final diary entry was torn out and thrown on the ground. It read, quote, We died because you would not let us live. End quote. In the morning, the Guyanese military arrived to survey the damage. 913 people were dead. Jonestown had been wiped off the map in one night. 
Luckily, the White Knight's fever did not spread farther than Georgetown headquarters. Stephen Jones and the others were able to pass word to San Francisco. Calmer minds there, like Archie Yamez, kept others from hurting themselves. For weeks, people feared that the temple members stateside would strike out, commit violence, or lead others to death. But that didn't happen. Their spirits were broken. They were lost, but there would not be another white night. The people's temple was over. Jones wasn't wrong. They would leave a legacy, but his revolutionary suicide failed. The general public immediately saw through the sham declaration of a revolution. Jim Jones wasn't a visionary. He was a murderer, a mass murderer, and a fraud. In the aftermath, Larry Layton was the only follower to ever be prosecuted in a court of law on the charge of conspiracy to kill a congressman. Survivors went in many different directions. Some were driven to suicide, wanting to follow their fallen leader and comrades into the great beyond. Others found solace in one another. Archie Iamis remained a committed universalist and often reached out to former members, trying to form a coalition of those who survived Jones's madness. Tim Reiterman went on to write the first historical profile of the People's Temple. Jonestown became lodged in the collective consciousness of the United States, a symbol of community gone wrong. And what of Jim Jones? Many wondered what his final intentions that day truly were. During the preparatory White Nights in late 1977 and early 1978, Jim Jones often claimed that he should remain behind in the event of revolutionary suicide. He needed to carry on his people's legacy. On November 18th, Jones made no such comments. But there is some compelling evidence that Jones wanted to survive. The truck sent after the Ryan Party's planes left one of the planes untouched by bullets, leaving open a potential escape route for survivors of the mass death in Jonestown. Jones also sent two loyalists out of Jonestown before the gathering in the pavilion. They had a suitcase of cash, which they were to hide. One of them even had a pilot's license. As people were dying in the pavilion, Jones began to grow restless, pushing his followers to end their lives as quickly as possible. Was he planning to flee the scene? There's a recording of the entire event in the pavilion, but it cuts out before the bitter end. Those gunshots that Clayton heard, who was doing the shooting? The gun with which Jim Jones supposedly shot himself was lying more than 20 feet away from his body. Perhaps one of the final followers standing saw what Jim Jones wanted to do and made sure that Jones kept his word to die with them. That might be a more poetic or justified ending, but it doesn't really matter. We will never know who shot Jim Jones. We only know that he died and took too many people along with him. Years later, Stephen Jones was finally able to accept his father's actions. He moved past the rage and the confusion. It was the only way he could live along with his brothers Jim Jr. and Timothy, who also traveled to Georgetown with Stefan's basketball team, Jim Jones' adopted daughter Suzanne also survived. A few years earlier, she had married Mike Cartmel, the son of temple leader Patty Cartmel, and the two had defected before the immigration into Guyana. Lou, Agnes, and Kimo, the son of Carolyn Layton and Jones, all perished at Jonestown along with their extended family members. But the slaughter granted Stefan clarity on what made his father tick. After all those years and all that horror, it was simple. It was clear. Jones never really changed. He was the same little boy from Lynn, caging other animals out of desperation. Recorded in the book Stories from Jonestown that chronicles the words of former members and survivors, we leave you now with Stefan Jones' thoughts on his infamous father. Quote, I didn't experience the temple as a healthy place. I lived in terror the first 19 years of my life. We faced annihilation on a daily basis. But then my father would always swoop in and rescue us, saying, it's all okay. Then you're eternally grateful to him. That happens all the time in abusive families. Eternally grateful. I think he did that to a lot of people. And I don't think it was just scheming to control people. He was just a kid in a candy store, and we were his candy." End quote. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. 
If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. As always, we thank you for listening. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Joel Stein and Carrie Murphy. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Jeanette Manning. Cults is written by Jack Bentel and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>